Welcome to the Guest Who Podcast, a collaborative podcast between Martin and Caleb, where we discuss pop culture and various topics. We interview various guests with the aim of highlighting their passions and interests. Today's guest is Sean Franklin, who is a journalist for the Anglican Journal and a talented storyteller. Join us as we talk about superheroes, fantasy fiction, the movie industry, and how it surprisingly helped Sean discover his career. Yeah, so into the dangerous spotters. Uh, so we, we entitled uh, this show The Storyteller, as you know. And so we had like a few ideas of uh, what we wanted to ask you. I know mm-hmm. Caleb here is a pretty big movie fan, so we had like a pretty cool icebreaker for you, I think. Okay. Uh, and Sean, as, as you know, I think you were the very first person that ever introduced me to crappy movie night. This is true. I've been doing uh, that since I was in high yeah. school, and I had a Blockbuster membership with unlimited movies. They didn't have <laughs> oh, that's bad. awesome. That was, that was my choice, that they would be bad ones. <laughs> So you actually like originally started back when, I guess renting movies from Blockbuster was a thing too. No, that's yeah, absolutely. It was it was like a real place that I went. They were dying, so they created this thing that was like as many movies as you want for ten bucks. Um, in an oh, attempt to yeah, compete with Netflix, that. I guess. So oh, that, that actually okay. worked out really well for me and my friends. <laughs> yeah, so I guess we wanted to know what would you say was the worst movie you've ever seen. Oh. See, I think that a lot of people will answer with one of the classic worst movies they've ever seen. The Room uh, is, is particularly right. horrid. Uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space is, is one of the famous ones. I think it's difficult to get an objective read on this because it's not literally the worst movie. Well, you want it literally... Probably like Birdemic Shock and Awe is the worst movie I've ever seen because they don't even get like the sound editing right, which is... It turns out it's very distracting. <laughs> um, like they, they will, you will hear the audio change in the middle of a conversation because they switched from one camera to another and had no like running audio transcription going. That's bad. That's hilarious. I do have wow. a special place in my heart for Puma Man, though. <laughs> Puma yeah, Man. Puma Man was pretty fantastic. I think that was the first one you ever showed me. What a what an absolute classic garbage movie <laughs> it opens with, with I, i'm intrigued is yeah i guess you haven't seen it caleb if you if you can take the time uh, there's a mystery science theater <laughs> 3000 episode of it so there's like one with people doing jokes over it if you would if that's like easier right. for you um but okay. in <laughs> i'm just gonna give you a little taste of the intro to puma man there's this like voiceover that tells you he will have the powers of a mad god the powers of a Puma Man. Puma Man. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Puma Man. And the thing is, it's not an echo effect. He just says Puma Man three times increasingly <laughs> Okay, that's going on my watch list for sure. Yeah, it's, it's, and the best like, part is someone had to write that script. Right, yeah, exactly. And then, and then everyone had to stand there in the studio watching him increasingly quietly whisper Puma Man. <laughs> and at the same time, people must have been wondering, like, I guess he equivalent. He, it's equivocal to a mad god, like mm-hmm. in the sense of. It yeah. might he might say man god. I'm not a hundred percent sure. Oh, but I like okay. to pretend it's mad god because that's even dumber. I it, it's ambiguous. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Listen and draw your own conclusion. Okay. It's the, the rest I, it of the movie actually, is like a ripoff of Superman, except that none of his powers make any sense. <laughs> yeah. Like he Actually, just he can fly, but also he can teleport for some reason. Oh, oh wow. yeah! <laughs> Wouldn't one of those render the other one pretty much irrelevant? Wait, so what does that have to do with being a puma, though? Is it like he can? Yeah, that's a that's another great question, Gil. <laughs> <laughs> that's, and the movie is not going to help you on that. <laughs> it would be like if Spider Man's prime power was Nightcrawler's <laughs> ability. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. It just it's. Is that something the Pumas are known for? Flight <laughs> and teleportation? No, that feels more like a bird and nothing. Nothing teleports. <laughs> Intriguing. That's going on my list, definitely. Definitely a good one for the list. Um, and so, in contrast, what would be your favorite movie of all time? Oh, no question. Uh, Superman. Superman the movie, 1976 or 8. It's embarrassing that I don't know that off the top of my head. Is it 8? I think it might be 8. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll take your word for it. Um, it's I'm not actually that embarrassed that I don't know the date of it off the top of my head. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I'm a reporter in my day job, and that is not a coincidence. When I was around 15, I watched Superman the movie for the first time in probably 15 years. Like I feel like the last time I saw it, I was very, very young indeed. Um, and there's that scene in the movie where. He goes to the Daily Planet for the first time. He's, he's like, doing his interview for the job. Um, and Lois Lane makes fun of him when he asks for half his paycheck to be sent to a certain address every month. Um, she says, oh, don't, for your bookie, right? And then he, he acts confused by that. And she says, don't tell me you're sending it to your gray-haired old mother. And Clark pushes his glasses up his nose and very gently says, actually, she's silver-haired. Um, <laughs> because, like, the, the joke is... is no one could be that nice and gentle and kind that they don't have anything to hide, even betting on sports. Um, but Clark is. And I thought, yeah, you know what? That's the kind of guy I want to be. I'm going to be a reporter. <laughs> I know that has nothing to do with being a reporter, but like, I don't know. It meant, it meant something to me. And I, I wanted to grow up to be someone like that and someone who worked for truth in a daily occupation right that's awesome that's amazing i think um if i remember correctly the tagline for that movie was like i believe a man can fly or something like that yeah i think it's you will believe a man can fly yeah Um, like that movie is just magic man it's like pure magic exactly because and the special effects by modern standards don't look that good but the thing that it does so well and the thing that Richard Donner, who was the director who worked on it, knew he was doing on purpose was um, making Superman fit into a world that looked familiar to us. Like, right. the, the modern world of Metropolis looks gritty and dingy, and people are mean to each other. And then this guy shows up who people react authentically to by saying, well, he's faking it. <laughs> <laughs> What's under his cape? Batteries? <laughs> right. And it's because it's so unbelievable that the character could be superhuman in that sense like super like the best i guess person we could possibly conceive of right Mm -hmm. and you know i don't even uh philosophically like believe in good people and bad people but but the idea that um someone might not be tricking you they're here to really help um and the way that people i think i think the thing that makes you really believe it and this is actually a great uh, uh presage of something that I had prepared to talk about on the show with you guys a little later. Um, The way that they set that in a real-life context and have people disbelieve it inclines the audience to believe it more because that's an actual way people would respond if someone showed up and saved a helicopter and then, like, made a quip about uh, air travel still being the safest way to fly and then left. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that sounds accurate. (laughs) And so I guess that goes in... I guess where we're headed with the show too is what makes the components of that such a great story? That's an excellent question. I really think it is. So, so Superman the movie is a weird movie in the way it's put together. Mm. Um, it's not like a typical three-act structure, I don't think. Well, it, to a certain degree it is. There's like the prologue on Krypton and the uh, first act in Smallville where he's like a young man learning how to be a, a, a kind person. Um, but it one thing that you notice is it switches genres throughout. Like, the, that first scene on Krypton is weird sci-fi. Star Wars had just come out the year before, and it was kind of... You could see the influence a little bit. Um, the scene that takes place in Smallville is set in the 1950s. Like, it makes no sense chronologically for the kids to be dressed the way they are and then for like presumably five to six years later Clark shows up in Metropolis and it's present day like how did 20 years go by in the blink of an eye (laughs) um but it took someone pointing that out to me for me to even get it because the emotional authenticity of Superman um brings it into the world it brings you into the world so that you go like yes everything that's happening right now makes perfect sense because i identify enough with this character and with the people reacting to him that i don't feel the need to question the weirder parts that's a really good point Mm -hmm. i think for us nowadays especially because special effects are like so i guess prominent that Mm -hmm. it actually goes the other way sometimes in that sense where 
there can be so many special effects that you could easily get zoned into, but it's like the reverse of what you just said. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think you're dead on. Um, something that, that might come up again a little later, I'm going to try and limit the amount that I bash Marvel movies because A, <laughs> I think that's a popular thing to do, and B, I, I really quite like the Marvel movies most of the time. Um, but one thing that they've been doing really weekly, especially since Infinity War, is um, nobody has a costume. No one has any props on the set. Right. Um, when, when like, Black Panther shows up, his suit appears out of nowhere on his body. Um, and that makes sense when Star-Lord's helmet does it or Rocket Raccoon's gun does it because the whole point of them is that they're from the space future and they have weird uh, technology that just appears out of thin air. And it makes sense when Tony Stark does it because his whole premise is to be like a weird space future guy. But the thing is, the more of your world doesn't exist in physical space for your actors to react to, the more of your world is meaningful visual noise, sorry, meaningless visual noise that gets thrown up for the audience to like look at but doesn't actually feel like something that is actually being interacted with by living people. I'll, I can... I can Yep. You sent me a couple of like questions to prepare for, and I can get into that a little more later if it if it comes up. But yeah, that's a great point. I've I've also noticed that a lot. Um, I really felt it in in No Way Home. I don't know if you've seen that. Um, yes, especially yep. if you, if you compare it to like the Raimi movies, you'll notice mm-hmm. that besides the first scene, like New York is empty. It's like it's all green screen, yeah. and there's mm-hmm. no there's no like Very civilian well. interaction. That's, That's a, a really great point, Caleb. I think you and I are going to get along really well. This is like <laughs> the second or third time we've spoken, but yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think I, actually I came like prepared to talk about the Raimi movies versus oh, the the uh, MCU Spider Man movies because um, the th- what's the one first thing you think of when you picture Spider Man? Um, there's an even chance I think that the first thing you thought of when I said that was the gesture that he does to shoot a web, right? Like the right. the very tangible, physical, real thing that I'm doing with my hands right now and I encourage you to do. <laughs> yeah. Per- personally, I- I'm actually um, thinking about the powers of a mad Puma God. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's, I mean, that's my own fault and I'll own that. Um, but like, I think that the reason that you think of that, the, the reason that that's such an important part of Spider-Man as a character is because when you're a kid on the playground and mm-hmm. you're doing like imaginary superhero games with your friends you want to be spider-man how are you going to be spider-man well how are you going to show these people you don't have a mask or web shooters or a costume on you unless you were a very unpopular kid who brought a spider-man <laughs> costume to school which is definitely something i have done on at least one occasion um but if you're if you're in the playground fight with your friends you are going to do the hand thing and go like pew 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 whew, thwip, because i'm shooting webs at you now and you get that Right, um, I, I've talked about this for too long, but I think that the reason that that's important is it is a tangible, it is a textured aspect of that superhero character mm-hmm. that makes him feel like you can share just a little bit in what he's doing on screen. Um, exactly, yeah. And it's the same for Superman with like the one fist up in the air and the second fist like down by your chest gesture, the like mm-hmm. I'm flying gesture. Um, and for Batman and the grappling hook or the batarang. Every, like, superhero that really sticks in people's minds has something that's like, I can do that at home. Mm -hmm. I can mimic that hero. Um, Because it makes it feel like it exists in a world that's like yours. And I think that when you give Spider-Man, like, a suit that, again, materializes out of nowhere because Tony Stark made it for him, um, and all of the, like, hologram things on the web shooter, I think that they start to erode that feeling that I can do it too. Right. Hmm. Right, because now it's something that's more so futuristic that it's unattainable unless you actually were that person. <laughs> yeah, and again, like Iron Man movies work really well using that stuff, but it's because they use that stuff in a way that's supposed to fit into Iron Man's like physical context in his world. So, uh, there's no element you can't use, but you have to use the other elements in your story to make it real. And if you don't do that, right. everything starts to feel floaty and disconnected. That's that's a really good point. Actually, one of the things I was actually talking to a friend about this sometime last year. Uh, we we're actually talking about video games, but one of the things we kind of noticed, and you actually mentioned this even when you guys were both discussing the uh, Spider-Man No Way Home, 
um, mm. that that kind of dead environment that kind of mm. shows up at the cost of like a beautiful screen. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the comparisons uh, my friend and I were talking about the Assassin's Creed games, <laughs> um, because yeah. even when you looked at like some of the older games or even like the, at least the good ones, they have the characters mm-hmm. that they have like the side characters and the environment is actually like lively. Whereas when mm-hmm. when Odyssey had come out, the Greek one, it looked beautiful, but there weren't that many character interactions in the everyday kind of atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So it felt like dead, yeah. like a wasteland, right. even though it looked beautiful because mm-hmm. it was Greece. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. And like, I think that Marvel movies in general are emphasizing a lot of the time interactions between superhero characters. And I, I right. guess part of that is because the last few like big ones that have come out have been the like blockbuster, like big Avengers, like team up ones. Mm-hmm. Um, but when that happens at the cost of talking to, you know, J. Jonah Jameson on a regular basis, like having right. Peter be someone who works at a newspaper um, and the newspaper has a cast of characters and he has to go in there and beg for money from the boss. That makes him feel like someone who is like living a life and it's not going that great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, whereas Every single thing that happens to Peter in the Marvel versions of those movies, after, a, well, no, in fairness, uh, what what's the first Marvel Spider-Man movie called? Uh, Homecoming. Homecoming. In Homecoming, he has like a lot of high school problems, right? And those are right. those make that movie feel lived in and real. Mm-hmm. But it, by the time you get to No Way Home, every single person he talks to, with the exception of Aunt May, MJ, and Ned. Mm-hmm is a superhero in That's some true. degree right That's um, or or a villain right and it starts to feel like it's not happening in a place that i can relate to yeah exactly. right that's very true i also want to yeah. throw in no one's behavior in that movie makes any sense at all oh yeah it's... dr strange starts berating a teenager for something he didn't explain to him how it works <laughs> yeah. sandman but... shows up for the first time and spidey's like hey can you help me find electro and sandman's like yeah, I don't have anything against you, random teenager. I'll help you fight Electro. And then later in the movie, Electro switches sides and becomes mm-hmm. a bad guy with, with uh, Norman Osborn. And Sandman's just like, he doesn't have any dialogue about it. He doesn't discuss it at all. He goes, from someone who will help a teenager fight a random villain because he's a decent dude to, I guess I'm a bad guy now. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, it's never entire... explained. Yeah, no, I, I always felt No Way Home was pretty contrived. Like, it's very much mm-hmm. about the cameo and the nostalgia first. Right. Besides, like, the story at hand. Um, Which, in like, fairness, those parts mm-hmm. really work. The yeah, cameo yeah. parts. They're very good. 100%. Yeah, I guess it was just at the cost of the actual overall storyline, right? Because mm-hmm. it all has to do with mm-hmm. the motive, I think, when it came down to the villains that was missing. Yeah, and, I think there's another, like... Sorry, I didn't realize oh, you weren't talking. Go on. <laughs> yeah, and, like, one of the other things I was even thinking about, too, was the Into, into the Spider-Verse, like the Miles Morales mm-hmm. version. It did something mm-hmm. really interesting in the sense where it focused so much on the character development that you didn't necessarily need to focus as much on the villains, but you could still get yeah. the villain's motive. Right. And and they still yeah, kept it did the something villain's really, motive. Yeah. Really amazing there. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, it, no, it, it kept it kept the villain's motive, but it was it didn't have to expand on it so much because it didn't need to. Whereas mm-hmm. this felt like it was just a quick shift in motive, and there was no explanation. Right, and it mm-hmm. like it, it just felt so, I guess, out of place or uncalled for that it just didn't make sense. Right, and also the other thing that's worth noting is all the villains in uh, Spider Verse are from Miles's world. Mm-hmm. That's there true. are none who are from the parallel worlds that the other spider people come from and I think right. that that's interesting because it means that the villains are contextualized in their world and they mm-hmm. fit into what's going on um, whereas like Spider-Man Homecoming takes place entirely in an apartment like the, the middle true. part of that movie right. it all takes place in this one apartment before they go to the Statue of Liberty um, right. and so Scorpion is not in it <laughs> Scorpion, Scorpion is in uh, into the Spider Verse though, and when he shows up, it's like, okay, I don't know what this dude's backstory is, but I've heard of Scorp- Scorpion before, so he's presumably a supervillain who works for Kingpin and has Scorpion powers, and that's mm-hmm. enough for me. Um, Electro like had a whole plot and story 
none of which is now relevant to this movie in No mm. Way Home. Right. Um, and I think, like, the Sinister Six, which is what that movie was supposed to be, despite the fact that nobody said the phrase and they didn't act like the Sinister Six, are supposed to be a bunch of people with prior relationships mm-hmm. with Spider-Man mm-hmm. who hate right. him because he keeps stopping them. And so, right. like, the Sinister Six has, like, I don't know, it's got kind of a rotating cast, but Sandman and Electro and, and Green Goblin is almost never in the Sinister Six, but those guys all, like, hate Spider-Man, and it's kind of cool to see a bunch of villains go, like, hey, I'm usually under the East River, like, putting together my weird reactor thing, but this dude keeps stopping me. Um, what do you say, you, who primarily rob banks, um, what if we both killed him? That's, like, an interesting character relationship. Those are two people who don't trust each other, who have, like, a strong reason to work together, and who are gonna end up clashing, and Spider-Man can use that against them. In this, six strangers who have never met each other show up all at once and fight. Yeah. Like, is that interesting? <laughs> yeah. Not exactly, yeah. That, I mean... They're not this, even this from sounds like here. A, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this sounds like a totally, like... I don't know, random comparison, but that actually made me of... Uh, Sean, did, were you the one that showed me the Mr. Plankett's movie reviews of Star Wars? Yeah. Yes, yeah. I think I was. <laughs> and it's such... I mean, for anyone listening, like the Mr. Plankett series stuff on YouTube, if you haven't seen it, is probably one of the funniest reviews you could probably see of, of <laughs> yeah, a movie. That's very, yeah. But I think... What, it gets, there's some dark comedy toward the end. <laughs> yeah, there, there is some dark <laughs> comedy in there, so... <laughs> Uh, be careful, I guess, whoever's listening to it or watching it. But I think one of the interesting not things for children, though, yeah, definitely yeah. not appropriate for children. But one of the really interesting things that was brought up uh, had to do with, like, I guess, with the prequels of Star Wars, where they just started shoving like uh, a bunch of like stuff into the show, like just just trying to shove like a bunch of visual like effects, yeah, and yeah, and just make mm-hmm. things look nice. And then as a result, like the substance was just gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and, and like compare that to the new Star Wars, and there's no plot that makes any sense, but the special right. effects look great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, at the cost of like good special effects, for some reason, they're just really lacking nowadays. I think when it comes to good storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of that too is even like character development. And I think you like you touched on this really well, even when you're speaking about uh, like Superman, but also even when you're speaking about like the far from home stuff as well Mm -hmm. um was that like good character development really makes a good story as well Mm. um and i think Mm. when mr plinkett brockett brought it up he ended up asking the question of if you had to describe a person from the prequel star wars movies without saying what they look like could you describe them Mm. yeah and like name a personality trait that they have exactly do you guys want to try that with like the the Using only things from No Way Home. You can't use things from the movies they originally came from. Give right. me a personality trait of Electro. Hmm. Uh. <laughs> it's I not mean, good that it's taking this long. I think that's a good point. I think that should be like the character development test. <laughs> he likes electricity. That's all I got. And you know what? That actually reminds me of when we had watched, I think it was X-Men Apocalypse. Way oh, that's back a when, bad one, yeah. And we were trying to figure out what the storyline of that movie was and who was the main character. Mm-hmm. And we were just as like stuck on that as we were just now with Electro. <laughs> yeah, it's not like it's not a good sign when people can't pick someone in your story and go like, mm-hmm. what are they doing here? What pr- exactly. Sandman in particular serves no purpose. He's just there to round out the numbers of the Sinister Six. Mm-hmm. Right. If you pay close attention, you'll notice he never solidifies enough for you to see the human face of the actor. I'm pretty right. sure it's because they couldn't get that guy. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> that exactly actually the point. Yeah, he was <laughs> filming something else. And, no the, and the only footage to get of him at the end, like when he turns back human, it's footage from mm. Spider-Man 3. Like, just extra no footage. Way. Yeah, wow. so... They pulled from the worst other Spider-Man movie to supplement their... Like, that's not... I don't think that's something you couldn't do. I, I don't think that would necessarily ruin your movie, but I think given that we've talked for about 15 minutes about the qualities of this film, that's not an additional good sign. Right. 
Um, yeah. Anyway, do you guys do you guys want to move on to a different question? I don't want to like as for, much for as we sure. can all sit here and complain about Spider-Man Home. <laughs> yeah, no, I could go on a trip. Sorry, yeah. no way home. But I think I think that kind of I don't know. Maybe we touched on it a little bit, but what's well, actually, no. This might be a slightly different question. But what story cliche do you get tired of seeing on screen, mm-hmm. That's or even a great in books? Question. Yeah. Hmm. I. This is kind of a meta cliche, but okay. um, I really don't like it when a story is like, "Oh, you really you're a big fan of Spider-Man, huh? Well, don't worry, we fixed him. You did what? Because <laughs> like, I already have heart palpitations thinking like. So you want me to pay you to come and see a version of a character that I have loved since I was eight, and you changed him to not be that anymore. Are you sure <laughs> that that's what you wanted to do? Um, just about every like bad adaptation of something that I can think of, like Arjun, I'm not going to do this to you right now, but you know I don't like Man of Steel very much. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> And it really comes to it from the attitude of like, well, we can't just do Superman because Superman. Eh. So how can we fix it? <laughs> um, and that's like, I think that that shows a fundamental lack of faith in the thing that you're adapting. And I think right. it also shows that the people who are hired to write these movies aren't fans of the thing they're writing about. And if you have all the money in the world, like Disney does. Or if you have all the money in the world, like, uh, yeah, no, I I think Disney's the example I'm going to stick with for this. Um, And you hire someone who, like, doesn't particularly like Star Wars to write your Star Wars movie. Why would you do that? That's that's a really (laughs) good point. Because even when you're talking about, like, how these people were good, like, were actual fans of what they were making... That's so key because mm-hmm. even when you think about like good movies that came out, like even when you think about the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Peter Jackson yep. was definitely like a huge fan of Tolkien's work. Deeply loved it. Yeah. And you can and see he, that. Like, in, you can see that in every frame. Exactly. And then even, I, this is probably like a random kind of connection too, but even with the Cobra Kai series, the, the filmmaker mm-hmm. or like the screenwriters were huge fans of the Karate Kid, so much so that I think even in the screenwriting, they probably fixed some of the plot holes in the original movies. Yeah. I mean, you and I have talked about Karate Kid, sorry, about Cobra Kai at length, Arjun, and how it's like, it really does put every other reboot of a series to shame, because it was written by someone who went like, who started from the premise, Karate Kid is a really good movie, it's deeply touching, and Mr. Miyagi is someone who reaches into the hearts of the audience. How do we take that man's legacy and bring it to the screen in a way that is interesting and fun? Yeah, and their plan for that was: what if we make the bad guy the new mentor? That's that's really clever. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's true of the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. It's true mm. of Superman the movie. These were creators who loved the thing that they were asked to make a movie of, and what came out the other end was something mm. we're still talking about. It's from 1978. And we're still talking about it, and I chose a mm. career based on it. Yeah. <laughs> that's when you know it's a really good story <laughs> yeah and, and don't, don't, don't get me wrong Like I chose journalism as a career because I'm interested in reporting and because I think that uh, exposing truths that people don't know about is a good way to, to improve the state of the world but yeah. the thing that made me go like hey maybe I should think about that was a movie about a really nice guy who happens to be able to lift a continent <laughs> right yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. So for, I, forgive me if that's not like what you were looking for with a story trope, but I was think, I was looking over your like prep questions today and I thought, you know what? The thing that bugs me more than anything is seeing someone make a movie that I'm pretty sure I could have come up with a better version of mm. and it's bad because they hated the thing they were adapting. Right. No, that's, that's a really good like analysis. I think that went beyond the question, but it was definitely like hugely insightful into what we're seeing nowadays mm-hmm. yeah i know that's a good point do you do you think there's ever a, like a chance where someone being a fan of something might be to the detriment though like when they become too much of a slave to the story in terms of like adapt like i think that it? could happen that's an interesting question mm-hmm. i don't think that being a fan of it in itself is what's going to ruin the movie right 
I think that having a like I think that loving something is almost never a mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a question of what you love more than... Like, this is the, the philosophy of St. Augustine, right. just to go way outside <laughs> the overall <laughs> scope of the episode until now. But, like, St. Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, all of their philosophy and theology is about ordering your loves and getting something higher over something lower. So, if you loved the original movie so much that all you did was make it again... Right, yep. Um, <laughs> I think you would be placing your love of the original movie... Mm-hmm. Over your love of telling a story like, that added anything to the mix. Exactly. And you know exactly what I was thinking of when I asked that question, because you alluded to it, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I actually don't know. Oh, what I, what I was, thinking, I was of? thinking of like The Force Awakens as a pretty much beat for beat yeah. you know, re- retelling of A New Hope in ways. And what's wild is that I liked it at the time, mm. because it does some interesting, fun things with how it retrains right. the beats. Yeah. Like... It, it does them, it mixes up the elements in a way that makes you go, oh, that's not how that originally happened, mm-hmm. so what does it mean that it happened differently this time? Yeah. Um, and when you thought there was a plan for that <laughs> to, to come together later, yeah. it seemed like a good idea. Exactly. And when it turned out that it was just set up with no punchline, mm-hmm. I lost interest pretty quick, right. I would say. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> Yeah, that, that definitely but Yeah, I think it's definitely a legitimate criticism that it's just like, hey, how do we make a good Star Wars movie? Well, what if we just made the first Star Wars movie? <laughs> <laughs> Can't go wrong. I mean, it worked the first time. <laughs> yeah, the fans will like it a second time. It's so fun. I remember way back in, like, 2008 when J.J. Abrams' Star Trek mm-hmm. movie came out. I remember my, my main criticism of that movie was, that Star Trek movie was a pretty good Star Wars movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think honestly, I think at that time though, people really wanted JJ Abrams, JJ Abrams to do a Star Wars movie, and I feel like that's just how it started. Like they saw Star Trek, and they're like, "Hey, mm-hmm. this this guy could do Star Wars," because the prequels just came out, and it was very unlike Star Wars in terms of its visual storytelling and the energy it had. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you know, JJ Abrams did Star Trek Two again with Into Darkness. He, he basically just retold it. And I needed the same thing with Force Awakens with Episode Four. So, yeah, huh? There's kind of a pattern emerging. There, <laughs> yeah, <isn't> exactly. <laughs> now, this this might be a hot take, but do you think that the creator of Avatar was just really into Pocahontas? <laughs> That's man. I could. Oh man, it's a topical question because Avatar Two comes out next. Week, yeah. Right? <laughs> That's uh. I'll, I'll let Sean go first. <laughs> So let me just make sure I've got the question right. Do I think the creator of Avatar was into... I didn't oh, quite catch po- the last one. Pocahontas. Um, I think the creator of Avatar was into making a lot of money. <laughs> um, okay. And I think that in order to do that, he created a movie that is, in many ways, the plot is the most obvious version <laughs> of uh, what if humans were the bad guys in a colonial situation. Right. Um, and as a result, I think it's kind of bound to have a lot of similarities to Pocahontas or to um, Atlantis, The Lost Empire, which <laughs> right. it has a very similar plot right. to as well. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, to be honest with you, and I, I never a no-but guy, but if we started a long conversation about Avatar, I think I'd be disappointed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a lame bet. <laughs> okay. We'll, we'll refrain from doing that then. <laughs> <laughs> and so I guess one of the other things we were talking about even when we are thinking about you for the podcast too was um, because I know you also like to make your own stories and you write your own stories and stuff. And mm-hmm. so what, I guess, influenced you at first? Was it the the narratives first, like the meta-narratives, or was it more the um, the character developments uh, when it came to, I guess, creating characters or even coming up with the ideas of making a story? Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's a great question. Um, there's a couple of different answers depending on which one, which which story we're talking about. Do I have time to talk about like both of the main narrative endeavors that I'm working yeah, on? Yeah, absolutely, if, if you're open to do that. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I just, I don't want to... Uh, monopolize the time and and run out of time because I was talking about the wrong thing for too long. Um, So, I think that there are 
a lot of great guides in the world about how to write fantasy and science fiction and stories in general really well. Uh, there's, you know, Save the Cat is like the key book on how to do script writing. Um, and it's got a lot of like advice on how to make story beats fit together. Um, Joseph Campbell's like Hero with a Thousand Faces is, is sort of like a, a the monomyth. It's the yeah. idea that they're, all stories are essentially the same story and it has these elements <laughs> in it. Um, and separately, like Patrick Rothfuss, who is a fantasy author, has some great advice on how to make your fantasy world. He says, be a geek for something that's in your world and then build your world around that. So Tolkien was a geek for maps and languages mm. and he made a world about maps and languages and Rothfuss is a geek for coin collecting and if you read his book uh, Name of the Wind and its sequel everything that happens in them is very tightly centered around finding money getting money, what does money feel like in your hand um, it's not about greed but like he really makes the world feel real by using the coins um, similarly Brandon Sanderson has a blog about how to make magic feel real that I won't go into detail about. Mm. Uh, my main point here is I don't know that I can give you better ideas of like how to how I'm I don't know if my process is going to be better than theirs in terms of how to put that together because there's a lot written on this already. What I can tell you is what I do when I write a story um, and maybe that will give an idea of like what I have to contribute to this conversation. That was a long preamble. <laughs> Thank you for no, your that's totally fine. <laughs> yeah, I guess maybe um, the latter, I guess. Mm -hmm. If Yeah, yeah, I, I I think that's what I'm going to go for. <laughs> um, the okay, so so when I think about, I write mostly. Well, in my day job, I'm a reporter, uh, which means I am a professional writer. Just for the record, I think it's worth noting that I don't have my fiction published anywhere just yet. Um, but when I write a story, I am always thinking about how can I make this feel real. This is what we've been talking about throughout this whole episode. If there was a theme to what we've discussed so far, it's like how do you make what's going on in a fantasy story feel real to the reader? Um, and there's a few ways to do that. One of them is what we talked about with Spider-Man's hands. Like, I can do that. I can mimic that physically. And so as a result, I get to feel like a little piece of that is here present with me in the real world. Um... Another way to do that is like what we talked about with Superman, where the way people react to what's going on is what is uh, carrying your belief in the more fantastical elements. Um, so, I am writing two different things right now. One of them is a D&D campaign, which, and I know this is the thing that Dungeon Masters always say, but maybe I'll turn it into a novel. <laughs> um... And the other one is a superhero audio show podcast that has been my baby since I was in high school, and one of these days I'll actually put it out. But, um, and with both of them, which one of those would you prefer I start with? Maybe the fantasy one? Yes. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think that a lot of people, when they start writing a D&D campaign, they go, how was this world created? At the dawn of time, who are the gods? What, like, because they come from it from a place of, like, how do I set up world building in the sense of literally building a world? Um, and I think that that's quite different from my typical approach. Um, I have got to a point where I'm, like, coming up with gods and demons and, like, a cosmology for the world. But we didn't start with that by a long shot. What we started with was, in fact, when we started this game, Laura was DMing it, so she built a map and came up with our first few quests, and she did a fantastic job of that, because we're still using those locations to this day. Um, and I brought to the table this character who she's now playing. Uh, the character's name is Saoirse Monaghan, and her story is the idea that she got cursed to become a banshee, um, and she got cursed to specifically prophesy the death of her husband. So as a result, she refused to go home to her husband so that she couldn't tell him he was going to die, and hopefully, therefore, he wouldn't die. And instead, she went off and became an adventurer. So she's got this dark secret at her core that none of her party members know when we start, which is, I consider myself a failure to my family because I ran away rather than confront them with the actual problem, and as a result, if I ever go home, my husband will die. But also, critically... I bet my husband really hates me right now. 
Right. Um, that's really good. Like, that's a lot just for one character. Like, just even off at the, at the start. And, yeah, that's, that's incredible true. that you'd be able to create, like, a character just even formulating the circumstances, like, for that character. Thank you. Uh, and I think something that's important about that is that, like, not... I didn't know everything about that when we started. What I knew at the beginning was, I want to play a bard who's cursed to be a banshee. And then we built outward from there in terms of, like... Because this is this is the lesson that I have to teach, which is, I like that character a lot. Um, and her story, like, matters and is in many ways the driving force of, of a bunch of what we're doing in the campaign now. Um... And I think the reason that she works is because um, we started with a nugget of an idea and then built in ways that it could interact with a world that felt believable, if you see what I mean. So, like, if you were cursed to become a banshee, what effect would that have on your personal life? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, and so I think that in that case, it was really a matter of um, simulational storytelling, if you know what I mean, as opposed to... Um, like uh, formulaic storytelling. So what I mean there is that one of them takes an element and then uh, tries to model as realistically as possible how it would fit into the world. And then the other one um, takes a story beat and tries to figure out how it's going to... how you're going to make those that formula happen, right. in a way. And I'm not knocking either one of them. Um, yeah. That's really interesting, because I think a lot of times nowadays... I've, I've noticed, and I, I know we've been bashing on Marvel a lot, but it's just one of the easier examples <laughs> just because whatever's mainstream, right? right? When it comes to, like, whether it's the new Star Wars. It's a very popular cultural touchstone at the exactly. moment. Exactly. Yeah. And again, I like a lot of those movies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah same. And and I think it's one of those things where you notice, like, the, the quality of characters have kind of gone down because I think a lot of people haven't thought through, um, like, the deeper... Uh, everyday life of the hero or like the like what that character is like sometimes mm-hmm. um, and especially when things get like sucked into like let's say like an MCU or like a big kind of universe kind of thing mm-hmm. a lot of times that gets that ends up sacrificing the character development or even like the character itself so much that you're just seeing an event play on screen but you don't feel connected to the character sure. as much right I want to bring it back to I think you're on to something to uh, Assassin's Creed and what you mentioned about that I think mm-hmm. that is just an example of diminishing returns with the MCU. When hmm. you keep having like four projects a year, three projects a year, you're bound to start falling into the trap of formulaic, um, just kind of picking what works, but forgetting like the essential character moments. Like if you compare Iron Man right. to like something mm-hmm. from Phase 4, it's a big, big difference. That's true. I have. I think that you're onto something, and I think that part of it also is the fact that they start to think of it in terms of not what would be something that would result from the premise of a guy who can become really small. Mm-hmm. And they start to think about it from the perspective of what happens to Ant-Man next. Exactly. Hmm. What's going to get people... I think if you open from the point of thinking, how am I going to grab someone's attention? Your story feels insincere because its its job is not to tell a story with a meaning. Its job is to get someone to give you $15. <laughs> right? And it's... Uh, you end up with something backwards there. So as I was even thinking, like, um, a, a lot of times, I guess, like, the journey of the story sometimes isn't as focused on, especially when it comes into movie making. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times mm-hmm. it just gets focused on, uh, yeah, like, what you're saying, like, what's next? Like, what is going to be the outcome of this movie? Mm-hmm. Rather than how yeah. are we going to get there? And, mm-hmm. and I think that's... And, like, I think you can do a shared universe without necessarily falling into that trap right. but it's a question of like how cynically how much is the business making your story oh, yeah right and how much is someone who wants to tell a story making it absolutely yep. yeah it, it could be like night and day difference between like watching just a long advertisement almost for the next movie versus seeing mm-hmm. the actual storyline play out right yeah um and then would it be worthwhile like taking some time to to think about how my other like thing came yeah, to be? yeah absolutely sure. yeah uh, so my other like work is a uh, a superhero project, and um, I came out of the movie Megamind with a lot of ideas in my head about supervillains and superheroes and how they fit together. Hmm. Um, and so 
I'm I'm deciding as I go how much of the information about this I want to give away. I think I think at the very least, like the the premise of it is okay. Um, so I came out of it with like these ideas in my mind for a character named Slam Samson and a character named Replicon, and one of them would be a good guy, probably the Slam Samson one, um, and one of them would be like a very arch, like cartoonish supervillain. <laughs> um, and I had those like ideas kicking around in my head for a while. Um, and I started by building up superpowers for them. And the thing is that I think is important about superpowers is they have to feel like something, again, back to that Spider-Man thing, that the audience can, like, picture working. Um, and I think that in particular, this is not the only way to write good superhero fiction or good fantasy, but it's the best way I know how. The rules of how your superpowers work determine to a strong degree how interested the audience are. And what I mean by that is um, in Superman, the movie, you know that he can fly, lift very heavy things, shoot lasers out of his eyes, and is very fast. And those are sort of, and oh, and super breath. And once you know that he can do those things, when you see him do them in a later scene, you go, oh, yeah, I knew he could do that. So it makes sense that that would be something he's doing at this point. Um, so, for example, you know, the, the uh, train is about to go over the bridge and he can't uh, fix the tracks in time, so he gets down in place of the railing and, and, and lets the train go over him. And, you know, he's bulletproof. We've seen him be bulletproof already, so I understand why that works. It's about using the tools in the box that you know about in interesting situations. I think that a lame way to do that, uh, or like a less interesting way in, in any case, is not knowing what your superhero can do before they get into a situation. Uh, because when you don't know what they can do, they could do anything, and you are no longer a participant, you're watching some pretty lights flash on a screen. Um, and so like similarly in the Batman movie, he doesn't have... or Sorry, and, and I'm talking about the movie The Batman that just came out, uh, like, last year. Um, you, for the most part, have seen what most of his gadgets do before he uses them, and it's, like, a lot of it is about the grapple gun, or if you haven't seen what they do, they're things like the wingsuit that he uses, which is just a normal wingsuit, which exists in the real world, mm -hmm. and you can see how it would work, because you've seen that before. Right, right. Um, and so, like, the the... Superpowers that I've got for these heroes are for Slam Samson, he can punch things really hard and he cannot be moved when something hits him. Um, and once you know those things about him, you know what he can do in an action scene. He doesn't have super strength, critically. Mm -hmm. So if there's a bus that is like pinning some civilians, he walks up to it and he knows that he can punch that bus, but he can't lift it. And that necessitates coming up with something creative because if you punch a bus that is on somebody, you kill the person that's on. <laughs> That's a good point. Right? Like if you move, if you if you knock that bus into the air and it falls back down, it doesn't help. Right, and that's also like I, I think a lot of comics. And correct me if I'm wrong. I'm pretty sure like comics have done that, right? Where they've incorporated like real world like physics or like the understanding of how real the real mm -hmm. world works, and at the same time applying the superpowers to that real world. So like even for example, I guess when. Uh, I guess we probably saw this in the Amazing Spider-Man, right? Where Gwen, where Gwen dies. Mm -hmm. The second one, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, and that that like is based on a, a very famous issue of that comic book, in which you have to reckon with the fact that Spider-Man's webs can stop a person from falling, mm -hmm. but they don't necessarily do that gently. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Unless, and so like really good Spider-Man comics, you see him like think that through and he goes I can't use a web because he learned his lesson mm. the first time he screwed that up mm -hmm. I can't use a web to grab that person by the heel it'll snap their neck but what I could do is build a trampoline like a, a, a full on spider web right. that bounces like a trampoline so that when they hit it it slows them down gently mm -hmm. um, yeah and out of that you get creative problem solving and you get an audience who's paying attention to what's going on because there's tension if they know your superhero can't do anything um, similarly, Replicon has like this thing on his arm that replaces his right hand, and he can use that to scan anything and duplicate that thing, hence Replicon. Oh, that's cool. Um, 
And like again, that's not a, a superpower that instantly solves any problem, um, but it's one that you could use. So like, you could use it to create. Uh, if you save what you've scanned, you can walk away later and have a car when you need it. But if you didn't scan a car before, you don't have that on you, so you don't have it prepared. Oh, okay. Um, you could use it to copy some bulletproof glass and make yourself a force field, but if there's no bulletproof glass around, you're going to have to figure something else out. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's a really good um, example of being able to use like the real world to your benefit, and then at the mm-hmm. same time, like apply what you, the actual powers it are into that world, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. So when you put those two guys in a fight with a guy who can fly, they have a problem, because neither one of them has an ability that lets them get up in the air very easily, right? So now they have to come up with a way um, to catch the guy who's flying around in the air above them. Or like in one of the fights that I use, um, there's a guy whose power is very loud dubstep, which is kind of out of date, (laughs) but I think that's kind of funny that he's using a musical style from 10 years ago as a weapon. Um, And so this dude, like, Slam Samson's powers are all about when he gets hit by something. So you can't kill him with a bullet or a truck, but if you play a really loud sound and mess with his inner ear, he falls over to the ground and is basically worthless, just like anybody would be. Hmm. Um, So figuring out a way out of that problem is figuring out a way, like, one of our dudes, the guy who could punch him and instantly end this fight, can't stand right now. So how do we get around that? And, like, the answer in that situation ends up being that Replicon, who is a very brilliant scientist, um, uses Slam's power to make, to when he punches things, very loud noises result. So they end up manipulating, like, the uh, sounds to, like, launch loud noises back at, and the, the villain's name in that case is Stereomancer. <laughs> um, I guess I should say that, that Slam and Replicon end up being teammates. That's, like, an, the, the premise of the show is that Replicon is the worst bad guy there's ever been, and Slam is... Uh, and, and by worst, I mean, like, most terrifying, like, greatest supervillain the world has ever seen. And Slam Samson is some nobody who really wishes he was a superhero, but, like, no one seems to pay any attention to right. him. Um, and they hate each other, because the one good thing in Slam's life is showing up and beating the snot out of Replicon whenever he starts something. And Replicon is sick of losing to some nobody, so he quits. Um, and through circumstances, the only place he has to go to run from the people who would like him dead are to the doorstep of his old arch nemesis, Slam Sense, and so they have to like find a way to work together. Yeah, no, that's actually pretty cool. Yeah, I, I yeah. love the um, the relationship between Slam and Replicon that you've created too. Thank you. Uh, and again, like that's all about like. Um, if you put these two people into this situation, it's kind of like silly and contrived that they end up in that situation. Mm -hmm. But once they're there, we make that feel real by having them bicker (laughs) constantly, (laughs) for example. Um, Because they don't like each other and they're not used to cooperating and they're used to trying to kill each other. Well, one of them's used to trying to kill the other and the other one's used to trying not to die. Um, And so as a result, you know, like that is a relationship that we can all picture having to work with someone we don't like and hopefully as they go through that situation they have to like find an apartment to rent together because they're not allowed to like be outside of a hundred feet of one another <laughs> because of court uh, mandates right um, as that goes on we feel like they're connected to a world that we can relate to and we feel like they interact in a way that we can follow and be surprised by but also kind of predict in a certain way right yeah that's that's awesome and i think that's like been one of my huge fascinations when i've listened to a lot of your stories and stuff has been like that you take character development and how they interact with the real world actually makes it applicable to the person listening right Mm. i think that's like part of the yeah like slam is a he's badly underemployed he works for a crummy little grocery store uh, and his boss is always yelling at him. And I think that that's like... I think the idea of someone who can punch a truck or, like, you know, break a building down, um, but who is being shouted at by this tiny little Russian lady is, like, inherently funny. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and she knows he can do those things. She just also knows that he's not going to fight back. Like, he doesn't have a secret identity. Oh, okay. She just, like, knows she could get away with it, so she does it too. <laughs> that makes it even more interesting. Yeah. 
<laughs> see, like, that's something I would want to see played out in a movie one day. <laughs> yeah, like, and don't get the idea that Miss Lochevsky is a character with her own, like, thoughts and feelings. She's not just there as a comedy prop, yeah, but... Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, I think it's the cool interaction between characters, too, right? Because there's that character development, but I think when you're able to make them like that closely related where it's so believable mm-hmm. uh, I think mm-hmm. the relationships of those characters are so key sure yeah like when I mentioned that Replicon has to run away from someone who hates him um, and it's because like he's been working very closely with his second in command who's this woman named Kathy for years she has helped plan every heist he's ever pulled and every hostage situation he's ever kidnapped somebody in and um, when he goes you know what I don't like this anymore and I'm going home um, she sees before her someone who just wasted her entire life's work. She put all her eggs in the basket of making Replicon the scariest villain there's ever been. Um, and if he's going to quit, she's got nothing. So she's going to kill him. <laughs> right. Because, <laughs> like, vengeance is very much on the table if you're a criminal. Right, yeah. <laughs> and it takes those themes and applies it to the characters, too. And I, I think that's also, like, the cool thing where it takes from the the main character development to the grand narrative or at least to like what they're held to I guess in, in terms of um, mm-hmm. either symbolism or morale I guess uh, and embodies it in a character right so that, that way you kind of get the best of like the grand narrative but then also the realisticness of it being human yeah I, I really like that you've spotted that because it, it really is a show about the idea that like even the most bitter of enemies through the process of intentional forgiveness and kindness, mm-hmm. can become people who care for one another. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Sean, forgive me, did you say this is going to be a podcast, or is this like a book you're writing? Yeah, so the, I mean, the, the old goal has always been to get my friends together and record it. I've written it as a, an audio script so that you can like listen to it, um, which has its own challenges, as you can imagine, because I can't show someone punching a bus, mm-hmm. but I also can't just have them say, it's time for me to punch that bus now, because that's quite <laughs> right uh, <laughs> irritating. Yeah. So it's, it's tricky, it's interesting, and, and uh, the feedback I've gotten on it from my test readers has been very positive, I think. Yeah. Um, it's also a difficult medium to produce oh, exactly. because I have to get people together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you answered my second question, which was like, how do you write for a podcast? Like, how do you, how, does the narrative goals stay the same? Like, how do you pace everything? But like... Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. So what I have tried to do, and I'm always nervous about saying this for something that hasn't come out yet, because if, if I put this on the record now and then people come back to it and they have listened to it and they go, no, you didn't, but I guess I'll just have to take that risk. Um, what I've tried to do is have it so that when when things happen in front of you, you tend to react to them out loud to a certain degree, especially if there's something you weren't expecting. Right. Um, so, you know what, let me, let me take a second run at this. The easy part is doing conversations and character beats. When people are having a conversation about like what they're going to do with their life, they talk about what they're going to do with their life. Mm-hmm. Um, the tougher part is doing an action scene. But something that I think I, I discussed with you a little earlier is that um, superhero action scenes, I think, should feel like puzzles that you're trying to solve. Because anybody can have two guys wail on each other for 20 minutes, and it doesn't matter if those two guys are Superman and Zod or Jeff and Kyle. They're just two guys punching each Mm -hmm. other, right? Um, But if you know that Superman is weak to magic, kryptonite, and lightning, and you have a a supervillain whose power is lightning, then they can find a way to hurt Superman. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... If you set up a fight scene as a puzzle, having characters discuss how to solve the puzzle, I can't punch that bus off him, but what we could do is uh, build a jack and then uh, I can block bullets while you slowly jack the, the bus up um, and get that guy out from under it. Right. Um, yeah, and so like setting things up as puzzles and discussing them as uh, strategic problems mm-hmm. to solve is how i've been going about doing action scenes that's really cool that I, there is a certain amount of also just like grunting and punching <laughs> yeah, sounds yeah. no that's good actually that that reminds me of an anime i don't know if you watch it sean but jojo's bizarre adventure 
has some of the most mm. unique, I think, fighting scenes in the, in the sense of like trying to puzzle solve how they're going to over like overcome the. Yeah, enemy. that's very cool. I haven't seen JoJo's actually, but uh, now that you've described it that way, I think I probably will. Yeah. Uh, the other show that works really good, uh, really well uh, in that regard is um, My Hero Academia. Yeah. I think, which is also an anime where like being able to punch stuff isn't always the solution to the problem and for a lot of the early seasons the main character every time he punches something he completely breaks his whole arm so he has to like seriously figure out i can throw at most two punches in this situation how am i going to break both my arms and still have solved this problem because once i'm done breaking my arms i'm I'm finished (laughs) right right like the strategic and like there's a lot of shows that you really don't need the visual aspect Mm -hmm. which i think is is sort of a weak part of visual storytelling honestly you should be giving me things that you can only see on screen but if you close your eyes and watch archer you can pretty much tell what's going on yeah (laughs) that's very true actually oh and also foley art is something that has become a bit of a hobby of mine um so i've created like special custom sound effects for when slam punches something and when the replicanon fires the replicanon is the gun on replicant's arm that uh, replicates things um, one thing that we worked out is the replicant and has like external storage. Mm-hmm. So like you can put a hard drive in it with a stored pattern for something it needs to replicate. Oh, that's cool. And when we do that, uh, my plan is to use the sound of slotting a tape into an old VCR. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> which I think just has like a very like <laughs> solid, realistic feeling to it, doesn't it? Oh yeah, <laughs> definitely. And people like underestimate just how much sound goes into selling something. Like, you take Star Wars yeah, without that exactly. sound effects, and, and it's, it's <laughs> not the same. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> Sorry, say that again? Like, if you take out the sound effects in Star Wars, like, it's a totally different experience. Oh, yeah. Like... It'd be completely boring. Yeah, exactly. Uh, even, even with, like, um, Spider-Man's... Like, one thing that Stan Lee really knew how to do well about superheroes was branding. Mm. So when Wolverine's claws pop out, it goes, snicked. Yeah. And mm. when Spider-Man shoots a web, it goes, like, yeah. And there are, are like key sound effects and when the thing punches somebody it goes it's clobber in time which is not a sound effect. <laughs> you know I mean? Yeah. Um and once you know that that is a thing that means this is happening, you don't just it doesn't just help you understand what's going on. You get excited because when you hear that snicked or maybe the the greatest example I can think of is the sound of a lightsaber turning on. You don't just you don't just know something's happening. You get excited because that you just turned on a lightsaber, and that always means something cool is about to happen. Yeah, exactly. The sound becomes like equated with what's next, kind of thing. It's the build up. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, those ones are not sounds. A lot of the examples I just use because they have the color. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it becomes like a an indicator that something. It's a what's the word? Stimulus of some kind. <laughs> um, yeah. So the, I mean. That was awesome. Like, I'm so thankful for you being able to, I guess, share the amount that you even shared about the stories and stuff. Um, of course. I don't want to give away everything because then no one, well, the, the nightmare scenario is someone steals it, but yeah, I think yeah. we'll know where they got it from if, if we see a character named Slam Sam. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> and Yeah, and so uh, I guess that's that's a good place to probably start i mean stop (laughs) for now but uh we'll definitely want to have you back on the podcast at some point to get more of your ideas i'll look forward to it not everything i have to say is a complaint about a disney (laughs) 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 that's just what we have to say (laughs) um (laughs) thank you for coming on um thanks for sharing just a little stuff about story i'm sure our listeners really appreciated that um is there anything else you would like to plug or promote yeah, well, so you can find my journalistic work at anglicanjournal.com, uh, which is where I'm writing for the moment. In the past year, I have done some very serious features. This is in great contrast to what we've been talking about on the show, but I've done some features on medically assisted dying, on a tour of apology that the Archbishop of Canterbury made of residential school survivors, um, and on a little more upbeat note, I'd, I've done stories on like what the role of saints are in the Anglican Church. So I think there's some really good work going on there. Even if you're not like that interested in the Anglican church, I'm sure you can find some good content on that website. Uh, Otherwise, I used to have a podcast of my own. It was called Pitch Me Something. We haven't done it in a little while, but you can still find it at franklyimplausible.com. Perfect. 
Well, that was pretty great podcast, right, Caleb? Agreed. Yeah, and the crazy thing was we actually recorded this back in early December, but since then you found something out, didn't you? Yeah, and probably in an act of serendipity, the same week we did the interview, it was the 45th anniversary of Superman the movie, and then the next day, DC Studios announced the new Superman movie. So that was pretty interesting with the timing of Yeah, of that was pretty crazy. I think it was like the next day you said something about, it was it James Gunn? It was James Gunn, yeah. yeah. And I'm now I'm even more interested after hearing Sean talk about Superman and what he sees in the character. I'm excited to see if they're going to translate that into the next uh, iteration. Yeah, hopefully they don't take too much of uh, Sean's ideas. But uh, yeah, it's it great having Sean on the show. And thanks again, Sean, for being a guest and our first supporter for this podcast. Now, we could go on talking about upcoming movies and stories, but why not do what all the Marvel movies do? Right, Caleb? Sounds good to me. Join us next time as we talk to the legend of hot takes and even hotter beats. As we ask him this profound question, how do you do this? How you do this? How you do this? Sell your soul like you do this. How you do this? How you do this? Sell your soul off for the music.